You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. With that, we're going to go into our scripture reading. Can I invite you to open up your phones, your tablets, your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read from verses 19 to 30 today. Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 30. Timothy and Epaphroditus. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who is genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served me with, sorry, served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because he heard that he was ill. Sorry, you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am, more, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honour such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. These are the true words of the living God. Thanks, Ikeo. Hey, thanks, Aaron. Afternoon, everybody. Can you hear me? Good afternoon. Hi, just trying out my mic. I uh, want to welcome you, especially to the second congregation, even though I lead the third congregation. Uh, and I'll echo Daryl's words that you're very, very welcome to check out the afternoon service. Um, <laughs> uh, in any case, I do want to welcome you, especially if you're here for the first time. Um, and just to orientate us a little bit, it's like we are in the series of Philippians, um, which is super exciting. Um, I really enjoy being with you all, um, knowing, just seeing familiar faces, singing with you all, and hearing the congregation sing is always something that moves my heart, especially something of this size. Um, and so before we start, why don't we go to God in prayer? And let me just pray for all of us. Father God, indeed, we have repeatedly sung of your mercy and the mercy that will take us home. We know that on that final day, we will see you face to face. We'll be transfixed. We'll be transformed. But until then, you're at work in us. And we pray that this afternoon, you will be at work in us through your word and by your spirit. And won't you do that for us? Won't you transform us from one degree of glory to the next for your son's sake? In this name we ask. Amen. So how are you coping with your January blues? <laughs> I know many of us are already looking back to our previous vacation in 2023 with fondness and nostalgia. Some of us are looking ahead to 2024, right? Planning all the overseas travel trips. Uh, maybe you have already even booked the air tickets on Expedia or Skyscanner. <laughs> all of us think about overseas travel in different ways. We have our individual preferences. 
some of us enjoy a slow vacation, right? You wake up late, wake up really late, have a slow breakfast, um, and then, I don't know, like read, have a slow lunch, and then read, nap, and then the day continues, right? Some of us, we pack our itineraries like a true blue Singaporean. We want every single cent and every single minute to count, right? There's no time to lose, right? Since we are out of the country, we might as well make full use of it, right? Some of us, we enjoy cultural trips, right? We have like UNESCO sites to check off. Um, we want to soak in the, the history and the culture of the city. Uh, we just want to take some time, spend some time in the museums, right? Some of us enjoy outdoor trips, right? Days one to seven is an alpine trek, and then we relax and wind down by doing around the island cycle. <laughs> <laughs> now, generally, we make travel plans to be refreshed. We make travel plans to relax, to take a break. Now, our text today seems to be a bunch of travel plans as well. Four times we read of Paul sending so and so to such and such a place. And we wonder what's up with the logistical updates. Right? Maybe we should just gloss over this and get, to some, get on, move on to something more edifying. After all, if you remove all the genealogies and travel plans in the Bible, getting through the Bible in one year would have been simpler. Now, but friends, I want to argue that this is not a Chan Brothers itinerary, given that the travel plans tend to be at the end of a New Testament letter. We are forced to ask, why here, why now? Why is this text? Why is Paul's travel plans in the middle of the letter? What's he trying to do? Right? And I want to argue that unlike our travel plans, Paul's travel plans are not for self-refreshment. They're not even self-serving. In fact, they're other-serving. In fact, our text today is all about different characters seeking the interests of one another. And so the breakdown for today's sermon is this, right? Seek the interests of others. What does it look like? Seek the interests of others. How can we do it? What does it look like? And how can we do it? Uh, and same thing, I want to encourage us to just keep our Bibles open so that you can track with me. So seek the interests of others. What does it look like? And the first thing I want to say is that it looks like normal Christian life. Now, let me get us up to speed with the flow of Philippians 2 so far, right? Uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, Paul commands and exhorts the church to seek the interests of one another. Count others as being more significant than yourselves. And then verses 6 through 11, which is what we famously call the Christ hymn, is how we can seek the interests of one another. And Paul does it by pointing to Jesus not just as the ultimate example of someone who seeks the interests of others by foregoing his own interests, but more than that, because Jesus seeks our interests, we can now likewise do that for others. And then last week's sermon on what is not seeking the interests of others, right? Grumbling and disputing clearly is not seeking the interests of others because people who do that, which is all of us, tend to be plagued with this sense of self-entitlement, right? And today's passage is on the examples of those who seek the interests of others. And so Paul presents to us two portraits, two living examples, if you like, in the persons of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Look at 2 verse 20 to 21, right? Uh, Paul says, I have no one like him, referring to Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. He's presenting Timothy as someone who sought the interests of uh, the church. And then he refers to a second character, Epaphroditus nearly died. Why? Because he was risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So, so the two paragraphs here, right? first paragraph is on Timothy and how he seeks the interests uh, of others. And then second paragraph on Epaphroditus and how he was sent by the Philippian church to seek Paul's interests. Now, but when I studied the text more closely, I realized that even though these two men are foregrounded, 
Paul, there are actually, actually other characters and other parties who are seeking the interests of one another. Now, what do I mean by that? Now, the Philippian church was seeking Paul's interests. How do we see that? Now, remember that they were trying to enter into a gospel partnership with Paul, 1 verse 5. And the manner in which they did so was actually in uh, wanting Epaphroditus to bear a financial gift to Paul, right? To meet his needs, to supply his needs. Where do you get that from? You can do your homework, chapter 4, verse 15 through 18. So, so the first thing we see is 2 verse 25, right? Um, what Paul, how Paul describes uh, Epaphroditus, your messenger and minister to my needs. But the second thing we see as well is the reverse is true. The Apostle Paul is also seeking the interests of the Philippian church. Well, he seeks their interests first and foremost by sending back a sick brother. Now, remember that Paul was stuck in a prison in Rome. And, and the Philippian church has tasked Epaphroditus to bring and to bear this financial gift to supply his needs. And on the way from Rome to Philippi, he caught a bug. He appeared to have taken ill. Well, in fact, he, he nearly died, 2 verse 27 tells us. And so what does Paul do? Look at what Paul says in 28. I am eager to send him, to send him back to the church, to his home church, which is the Philippian church, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and I may be less anxious so Paul wants to send back Epaphroditus to his home church because he doesn't want to rob them of a very dear brother and an able minister. But not only does he seek the interest of the church by sending back their sick brother, he also sends them his best co-worker. Now, where do you see that? Now, even though Paul is in prison, he was deeply concerned for them. Remember how he wrote because he wanted to know about their well-being. Let's look at the next. Yeah. And, and so he says, I hope to send Timothy to you so that I may be cheered by news of you. What did Paul want to find out? Paul wanted to find out whether uh, their lives were in alignment with the gospel, right? whether they were living lives that were worthy of the gospel. Paul wanted to find out whether they were standing firm in persecution. Paul wanted to find out whether they were united or disunited. And so he sends Timothy along. He sends his best co-worker along. Right? And remember that since Paul was stuck in jail, he sends someone like himself. Right? And Paul writes, I have no one like him. Uh, the text literally means I have no one like-minded. There's no one who thinks like me, apart from Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. So since his own movements are restricted, the next best thing that Paul can do is to send a proto-Paul, <laughs> an extension of himself, Timothy, if you will, as a representative of him. And so in summary, look at what the normal Christian life is all about. Timothy sought the church's interest, Epaphroditus sought Paul's interest, the church sought Paul's interest, and Paul sought the church's interest. In other words, seeking the interest of one another is not the premise of elite Christians. It's not the prerogative or privilege of elite Christians. It is a normal Christian life. If you call yourself a Christian, then normal Christian living is always other-centered. It's about seeking the interest of someone else. And so, seeking the interest is normal Christian life, but it's also not without costs. It's also not without costs. Now, Paul had to bear real costs for sending Epaphroditus back to his home church. Remember the context in those days is that Roman prisons, unlike modern-day prison systems, right? Roman prisons, they only avail one guard or two guards to confine you. Now, everything with regards to your basic needs, your food, your lodging, no, not lodging, your food, uh, uh, your clothing, you look to them, you look to your family and your friends to meet your needs. And this is exactly what's happening over there, right? The Philippian church had to send Epaphroditus with a gift to meet his needs. 
But more than just meeting his basic needs, Epaphroditus was there to, 2 verse 30, complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, to be sure, Paul wasn't doing a pegro on the church. It's like, oh, you guys cannot make it, right? Like, but huh, Epaphroditus is different. No, no, no. He's saying that, thank you so much for your gospel partnership. Thank you for your financial gift to supply my needs. But Epaphroditus being here is way more than just bringing that gift because he's here to meet my emotional needs. He's here to meet my spiritual needs. In other words, for Paul to send Epaphroditus back to his home church, he's losing what? He's losing friendship. He's losing fellowship. It cost him. But the reverse is true as well, right? It also caused um, Epaphroditus to serve Paul. Now, the journey between Philippi and Rome was arduously long. It was something like 800 miles. And I'm pretty confident uh, that Epaphroditus wasn't traveling in luxury um, on the Royal Caribbean Mediterranean cruise or something like that, right? <laughs> on route, he took ill and he had every reason to turn back. I mean, he has fallen ill, right? He can call in sick, he can call back and say, can I ask, a, ask for an MC, right? No, he didn't. <laughs> now, what he did was that he completed the mission. In fact, Scripture tells us that he risked his life. Now, why? Because he was entrusted with a mission from his home church. They prayed for him, they commissioned him, they're like, go, serve Paul, Right? And he was not about to give up his mission, even though he was sick, thereby risking his own safety and life. And so we see both Paul and Epaphroditus were seeking each other's interests, but at a cost. But it doesn't just, seeking the interests of others is not just, it's not just costing us practically, it costs us emotionally as well. What do I mean by that? The number of words related to emotions are aplenty in the text. Let me show you very quickly. This is true of Timothy, 2 verse 20. I have no one like him, Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Now, the word concern is actually better translated anxious. Same word that pops up in chapter 4 verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in all prayer and supplication, present your request to God. In other words, Timothy was not just concerned, he was burdened about the well-being of the church. He lost sleep over how the Philippian church was doing. But this is not just true of Timothy, right? This is true of Epaphroditus as well. Look at chapter 2, verse 26. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Oh, guys, just, let's just stop here and think about it. He was ill and he was distressed because the church, home church, heard that he was ill. He's more concerned that they were worried over him than about his own illness. Hmm. He wasn't wallowing in self-pity. He wasn't licking his wounds. He's like, hey, show me some love, right? No, 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 none of that. He was worried about their worrying over him. Wow, what a man. But then there's a third example as well. Look at Paul himself, right? Paul had to bear some emotional cost too. 2 verse 27. Epaphroditus was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Now, if you notice, up to this point, the entire letter of Philippians only has one dominant note, joy. For the first time, he mentions sorrow. So why? Why, Paul, are you sorrowful? Are you sorrowful because you're worried about being in chains? No. Is Paul worried about, is he sorrowful because he might be executed? No. He's sorrowful because he nearly lost a dear brother. It's almost like he's untouchable, right? Joy has been something that accompanied him, but when it comes to almost losing a dear brother and co-worker, he was sorrowful. Now, friends, what's my point here? This travelogue 
these travel plans that we read is not cold or clinical. It is full of deep, binding affection in all directions. There is so much affection, so much emotions. And so seeking the interests of others is not just a normal Christian life. It's not without costs. This text doesn't just illustrate what it looks like to seek the interests of others, but it also hints at what keeps us from seeking the interests of others. Now come with me to 2 verse 21. They all seek their own interests. Now Paul is referring to the attitude of self-promotion. If you remember in chapter 1, verses 15, 16 or so, there are, pe- there are preachers in Rome who were preaching Christ, but why were they proclaiming Christ? Out of envy, out of rivalry, out of selfish ambition. Self- self-promotion keeps us from seeking the interests of others, but that's not all. Self-preservation keeps us from seeking the interests of others as well. Now think about it, if our text tells us that Epaphroditus risked his life for the cause of the gospel, it means that what actually keeps us from serving the interests of others is when we are excessively concerned about our own needs. I'm going to talk about that much later, okay, like on self-preservation, but I want to show you that what keeps us from seeking the interests of others, typically self-promotion and self-preservation. So friends, what does it cost us to seek the interests of others? Now let me just contextualize that for us a little bit, right? Let me give you real concrete RAC examples, right? So we know, you guys know that in order for us to want to see more gospel-centered churches planted in Singapore, we have planted out uh, ECP and Unling in the last two years. But we also know that that comes with costs, right? Not just finances, not just energy, not just time, not just effort. We lost the most able and most ministry-minded people. In case you think that, you know, we only send out the people we don't like, that's really not true. (laughs) (laughs) We lost friendships. Many of you lost friendships. Some of you lost that sense of familiarity, right? I, I, have, I have someone in my office who was crying because it's like the congregation is no longer the same. There's a sense of displacement. And for myself, there, there is like a personal cause, right? I mean, I pastored a third congregation. One quarter of them went to Unling. I lost a full-time pastor. Uh, I, I lost half my CG. I lost my closest friends. Even my biological brother also went over to Unling. It comes with cost, right? Seeking the interests of others. It comes with cost even for, let me tell you about another couple who has moved to Third Congre from the first. Um, you, you know, it's like once they came and I was like, why are you here at Third? Is it because you want to sleep in and have a longer breakfast? And they're like, no, because like, we know that there are needs in the Third and that's why we're here. I was like, wow. And at what cost? They're like, well, I mean, we lost a lot of friendships. We just have to rebuild everything over again. Well, think about uh, our Rizam partners. Like many of you know that we are part of this like church network, which is like family of churches, Asia Pacific, Rizam, right? We partner with churches in Japan, India, Hong Kong, Australia. When RIC elders travel to these churches to strengthen them, it comes at a cost again. I don't mean just like flight costs, right? But especially for non-staff elders, they have to leave behind their work, leave behind their families. But friends, Remember we say when you seek the interests of others, it doesn't just come at a practical cost, but at an emotional cost as well. Just two weeks ago, there was a couple who had to bury their newborn. And 
some of us were at that funeral. It was attended by like more than 100 over people. Uh, it was quite a sight to behold, right? The whole atmosphere was very palpable. Faces were wet, people were just like weeping. And then there was like a whole line of people queuing up to want to comfort um, the couple. Just last weekend, uh, my wife and I visited the couple and we were just like, hey, how are you guys doing? And the exact words of the mother went something like this. I had no more tears to cry. But when people were crying with me and crying on my behalf, it felt strangely comforting. Why would anybody bind their hearts to the hearts of those who suffer? Why would you make someone else's problem your problem? Well, friends, think about it. Those of us who have been through national service, right? You know what your army officer likes to say to you? Don't make your problem my problem. Now, Paul is saying the opposite. He's saying when you seek the interests of others, you're actually taking on someone else's problem. Christianity is so countercultural. But guys, I want to go further than just illustrate with real-life RAC examples of how seeking the interests of others look like. I want to talk about that two self-serving attitudes that keep us from seeking the interests of others. I want us to consider what underlies the attitude of self Promotion. What underlies that attitude of self-promotion? Now remember 1 verse 17, he's referring to a group of preachers, right? And he says that the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition. And then he uses the same words again in chapter 2 when he's addressing the Philippian church. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, but count others more significant than yourselves. Now two things here. In other words, what keeps us from counting others more significant is our selfish ambition and conceit. But remember, I'm asking us, like, what keeps us from, what, what keeps us from seeking others? Self-promotion. Now, what's underlying self-promotion? Now, that, that word conceit is a very interesting word. Because the word conceit doesn't just mean, like, arrogant or proud or anything like that. The, the actual word actually means, like, empty glory, vain glory. In other words, the reason why we're self-promoting is because we want to be significant. We all want to be known. We want to be a somebody. We want to matter. Our greatest fear is that we are insignificant and that we don't matter. And we want to matter in our careers, right? That's why we make practical sacrifices, we work long hours, we burn our weekends, we end up having less time with the family or for our own rest. It comes with emotional costs as well, right? Think about, no, friends, think about this. Like the thing that keeps you up at night not just because you can't go to bed, but because you can't sleep. What is it? And very often, you know, when we talk to one another, we hear things like, yeah, like, you know, I was passed by a, a, a very precious career opportunity. I was passed by a promotion. Now, friends, we don't only want to matter in our careers. We even want to find our significance in ministry, even when the way we serve. We want to feel significant when we serve. Now, how do we know that? Well, think about that comparison voice that exists in all of us, right? Oh man, it's like, I wish I was as gifted as so-and-so. I wish I was more useful. I wish there's more fruit in my ministry. And when we compare ourselves to others and we feel better than other Christians, what happens? We derive a sense of significance. But when we compare ourselves to others and we feel lesser than others, we start getting envious. We start getting jealous. But what underlies that jealousy or envy is this? You think about it, if you break it down, 
you care less about someone else being served than you care about that person being served by you. Now friends, our need for significance contribute to self-promotion. We need to feel significant, which is why it's hard for us to count others as significant. When you are nobody, you're scared to be a nobody, you want to be a somebody, you end up having no time for anybody. So that's self-promotion. What about self-preservation? Self-preservation tendencies keep us as well from seeking the interests of others. Now, I want to caveat by saying that there's a difference and a distinction between self-preservation and self-care. Okay, they're different. I want to lay it out there first and foremost. Okay, there's nothing wrong with self-care. Now, while Paul commends Epaphroditus for risking his life for the work of Christ, let's not forget this. What did he say? He actually wanted God to show mercy to Epaphroditus so that he'll be spared sorrow upon sorrow. In other words, Paul wasn't advocating martyrdom for all believers. <laughs> now, to be sure, we all, can, we all should take up our cross and die to ourselves daily. To be sure, we all can be more radical and more sacrificial. Right? But be careful if you think that self-care is for lesser Christians. Be careful if you think that burning the candle from both ends is the only way to serve Jesus. Now, that's self-care. But let's come back to self-preservation. Now, how does self-preservation sound like? This is how it sounds like. I'm busy. I'm worn out from work. I don't even have time to lick my wounds. <laughs> Let alone bandwidth to care for other people. You have no idea how much pressures I'm facing every single day. In my marriage, in my work, for my children, for my health. How can I serve other people in my weakness? Now friends, there are two assumptions underlying the self-preservation talk. The first is that we cannot seek the interests of others in our weakness. You know that couple that I told you who buried the baby? Some of us who were there at the funeral, I tell you what we saw. He was just crying. He was just in shambles. In between his sobs, he was preaching the gospel. In between his sobs, he was trying to strengthen the saints who were there to ask us the number of days arrived. Whoever said that you cannot serve in your weakness, Now, the second assumption is this, right? The second assumption is, it assumes that the one being served is advantage, while the, the one who's serving is disadvantaged. But again, we know that's not true. Those elders who left RIC to strengthen churches in, in the resound cities, they come back and they said, you know what? We are strengthened. We are strengthened by looking at what happened on the ground, by looking at the faithfulness of the other elders in other churches. So friends, it's simply not true that we need to be in our top form before we can seek the interests of others. In fact, when you and I are suffering, we are more prone than ever to curve inwards on ourselves and feel so sorry for ourselves. Now, there's a big caveat here that I want to give before I move on to the second point. When I'm talking about self-preservation, I'm not referring to those of you who have sacrificially poured out your lives, but you have been hurt very badly by sinful responses. And because of that, you're wary, you're careful, you're cautious. Now, I'm not referring to this kind of people. If that's you, I'm not talking about, I'm not describing you when I'm talking about self-preservation. Some of us who have loved others, and what you constantly hear from other people is, you're not doing enough. You're not caring enough. You don't love me well enough. I know someone who has um, gone to another church to revitalize the church, except that he became a victim of church politics. I know of leaders in this church 
who have tried to journey with some people except they are taken on a ride. And understandably, you, you wonder, you say in your heart, should I continue to love people like that? It hurts. Or maybe to some of us even, the way you have been serving your families, but yet all you're experiencing in return is abusive behavior. Now friends, I want to say that if that's you, number one, I'm not talking about you when I talk about self-preservation. I want to invite you to go to God, bring your hurts to Him, and give Him time to heal them. These are real hurts, and God doesn't dismiss them. But I also do want to say that if you're one of those people who are experiencing abuse, have ex experienced abuse, again, I'm not referring to you. In fact, I want to say, come up and speak to me, come and speak to some of the elders up front. There's an abuse team as well. Happy to talk to you. But having said that, I want to say, most of us, the rest of us, why are we afraid to seek the interests of others? It's because we are self-preserving and because we look to our interests. Now listen to this quote by C.S. Lewis. Now love anything and your heart will be broken. If you want to keep it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it around, wrap it carefully around with hobbies and luxuries, lock it up safe in the casket of your selfishness, but in that casket it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Because to love is to be vulnerable. So friends, seeking the interests of others is the normal Christian life, but it's not without costs. Do it at your own peril. But let's go on to our second point. Seek the interests of others. How can we do it? How can we do it? And the first thing we want to see is that we can do it by looking to Christ. Now, our text today has a lot of echoes from the Christ hymn in chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Remember that Timothy and Epaphroditus are two human illustrations who counted others as being more significant than themselves. In fact, in 2 verse 25, look at what Paul said. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother. Actually, the word, the original word is actually counted. I've counted it necessary. Paul has counted the, the, the loss and the gains, and he has decided that sending Epaphroditus back to his home church is of greater benefit than keeping him at his side. But you know what? This man and the way they have counted pointed to their Savior. Now listen to this in 2 verse 6. What did Jesus do? Jesus did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And then let's look at chapter 2, verse 22, right? We are told that Timothy served with Paul in the gospel. Now, except that the same word was used on Jesus. They were merely following the footsteps of the servant par excellence, right? Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Now, friends, the eternal Son of God who knew ceaseless joy in the heavens basically took on flesh so that He can become a man of sorrows, so that He can bear our emotional burdens, so that He can lament with us over our sins and suffering, over our iniquities and infirmities. Isn't that something? He bound Himself up with us. What about 2 verse 27? Epaphroditus was said to be ill and near to death. The language is literally to the point of death, which reminds us of chapter 2 verse 8. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, to the point of death and even death on the cross. So Jesus didn't risk his life. 
He willingly went to the cross and went to die to forgive us of our sins, sins of rejecting God, sins of rebellion against Him, sins of lovelessness, sins of self-promotion and self-preservation. Now, friends, Jesus didn't go to the cross because He was an unsuspecting victim of political gaming, but He died to seek the interests of the very people who are trying to hurt Him. On the cross, Jesus took on our greatest fear. He became insignificant. He was ignored by the one who said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. My friends, he became insignificant so that you and I can find our significance in Christ. Every deepest longing for significance, whether it's in your career, in your ministry, or even in relationships, point to your need for God and can only be found in Jesus. On the cross, Jesus looks at you and I and says that you matter and you are enough. Now think about this. Because of this, it frees us up from seeking significance outside of the cross. It frees us up to seek the interests of others. But friends, more than that, think think about how Jesus sought our interests, right? He sought our highest interests on the cross. He forgave our sins. He erased our guilt. He reconciled us to a holy God. If He sought our deepest and our highest interests. Will He not seek our daily interests? Will He not meet our daily needs? The one who has given Him His life as a ransom for many, and that's the way He served us, continues to serve us daily. And more than that, He is more than ever ready to serve His people, His church. Which means two things. You can feel very weak, and yet your weakness is no hindrance to Christ who is ready to serve His people. Which also means the second thing, when you're trying to serve other people, remember what I said earlier, we're binding our hearts with someone else, we're feeling emotionally connected. But because Jesus is ready to, to serve the interests of others through you and I, we don't become burnout. We don't over-identify. We don't carry the burdens on our own shoulders as if we're doing this all alone. And because Jesus seeks our interests, we are free from self-preservation to finally seek the interests of others. Now friends, Jesus went to the cross because he has decided to make our problem his problem. He really is the true and better army officer. So how are we able to seek the interests of others? First, by looking to Christ, and finally, by imitating those who seek Christ-likeness in others. Now, you've seen how Timothy and Epaphroditus are examples of men who sought the interests of others. Let's look closely again at how the passage describes Timothy in particular. Right? 2 verse 20, I have no one like him, like Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. So what Paul is doing here is that he's doing a bit of a compare and contrast, right? Those who seek their own interests don't seek the interests of Christ. But Timothy, who actually is concerned for their welfare, is kind of seeking the interests of Christ. Now, if you like, the question here is, what is the interest of Christ? And from this text, we can see the interest of Christ is to care about the spiritual well-being of his people. But I want to go one step further. I want to say, seeking the interests of others ultimately is seeking Christ-likeness in them. Okay, you track with me. Seeking the interests of others is seeking Christ-likeness with them. How do we see that? Where do we see that from in the text? 
Now remember in 2 verse 5, Paul says this, have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus, right? The question is this, how do we have a renewed mind? How do we have the mind of Christ? How do we get it? And the answer is the cross. When Jesus died, he didn't just forgive our sins, he has secured all the gospel blessings and riches. And that includes the mind of Christ. If I were to put it another way, Jesus so seeks your highest interest of looking like him that he's prepared to go to the cross. He wants to conform you and I to his likeness. He wants you and I to not just have his mind, but to grow into his mind on a day-by-day basis. And so if you to look at the next slide, look at this, look at what it says. If Christ's highest interest is his people's Christ-likeness, then seeking the interests of others must entail seeking their Christ-likeness. I'm going to put it up here for 10 seconds. Okay? You guys just, just read this again. I know it's like the sentence is long. I've tried you know, doing origami to this sentence many times. Okay? <laughs> Let me say it again. Okay? If Christ's highest interest is his people's Christ-likeness, then seeking the interests of others must entail seeking their Christ-likeness. And that's the reason why Scripture holds up for us the example of Timothy who sought the interests of Christ in others. Now, friends, before we talk about imitating those who seek Christ-likeness in others, I want to speak very briefly on why seeking the interests of others must entail seeking their Christ-likeness. Okay, a bit of a parenthesis, okay, a bit of a diversion, but I want you to follow me closely. I've heard of this 80-year-old lady um, who had to take care of a 40-year-old mentally disabled daughter. And many people have asked her, it's like, hey, you actually knew about the potential medical condition during pregnancy. Why didn't you just go ahead and abort? Because if you did, then you wouldn't have wasted 40 years of your life. Now, friends, the question is this. Did the woman who has been taking care of her daughter for 40 years waste her life? Well, yes, if all of life is about self-fulfillment and chasing dreams, then she really has forgone 40 years of her life. But if... Christ's highest interest for her is her Christ-likeness, then I don't think a single moment has been wasted. You know why? Because if I were to hazard a guess, I think this woman who has served her daughter for 40 years probably looks more Christ-like than many of us in this room. Now, friends, I want you to think about this. If Christ's highest interest is our Christ-likeness, we can finally have the resource to make sense of suffering and pain. Because I tell you why, like, when tribulations and troubles come, when the woes come, when the waves after waves of like trouble like just overwhelm you, and if you if you don't know that Christ's highest interest for you is Christ likeness, you're gonna think it's just a very it's a it's an inconvenient interruption to my self fulfillment. But it's not, because Christ is actually conforming you to His likeness moment by moment in those Christ likeness towards Christ likeness. Your chronic pains are not wasted. Your difficult marriages are not wasted. Your strained relationships are not wasted. Your cancer report is not wasted. Only if the highest interest is Christ-likeness. Because anything less than that, it is inconvenient and it is an interruption. Close parenthesis. Now, if seeking the interests of others must entail seeking their Christ-likeness, then this defines how we think about discipleship, right? Now, friends, discipleship is not just spending time together, traveling together, eating good food together, drinking coffee. I enjoy all of those things, right? Discipleship is not even just meeting someone else's physical needs. It's not just being nice. It's not just being considerate. It's not stand up Stacy, right, in the MRT. <laughs> you get the reference, right? 
True discipleship at the end of the day must include seeking the highest good of the person whom I'm trying to love and serve. That is the Christ-likeness of that person. It means I'm intentional about pointing him or her to Jesus, pointing out Jesus' beauty in all his person and works and excellencies. So much so to the degree that that person whom I'm discipling beholds Jesus and who he is clearly, he becomes more and more like his saviour. Now, that's true discipleship. Anything less is not seeking that interest. So how do we seek Christ-likeness in others? By imitating those who constantly seek Christ-likeness in others. God has resourced us with the church, with brothers and sisters. Now, many years back, um, my wife and I, then girlfriend, right, like, um, I, was a, I was a non-staff elder. This is like probably nine years back or something like that. And there was an elder in this church who invited me to his home, right? And so we gladly took up the invitation. We went to his home, had a really nice meal. And, you know, in my mind, like all good hospitality, it must, have, it must begin with a nice long meal, followed by a nice long dessert, followed by a nice long coffee, right? But straight after dinner, um, the, the wife of the elders stood up and like, hey, Denise, can you follow me into the kitchen? Uh, help me with the dishes. Oh. <laughs> and then that brother, that elder was like, okay, Akeong, like, why don't you um, read a bedtime story to my son? And I was like, the Chinese in me is like, that's not the way you treat guests. <laughs> <laughs> right, for real, right? But, but no, but in hindsight, I recognize what that brother is doing. He's trying to seek my Christ-likeness in the ordinary and the mundane. He's trying to show me what's serving the household, not just the household of God, which is the church, what my household looks like. He's trying to show me seeking the interests of others and Christ-likeness looks very unspectacular. There's no divide between the private and the public. So Christian, look out for men and women who make decisions that appear to have no obvious gain to themselves. In fact, they're always incurring losses Look out for these men and women who are always thinking about Christ and His people. Listen to the way they make decisions to take up a promotion or to not take up a promotion, to steward their finances, to decide to marry or not to marry, to relocate or not to relocate to another country, to parent their children, to make travel plans. And I know some of us who love the Suzukis and know them, right? When you go, when you go to Japan, you even like do a detour so that you can actually go and visit them and get them gifts and encourage them, right? So friends, listen to how these people make decisions for the highest good of God's people and imitate them. Watch them. Now, if you're a seeker, we're glad you're here with us and thank you for, maybe if you're here for a couple of weeks, you've been listening to our sermons and I want to do something else that's scarier than asking you to listen to our sermons, which is enter into our community. What do I mean by that? Because I want you to come and see how the church imperfectly seek the interests of one another. I'm not claiming perfection here. I'm not claiming that we won't hurt you. But I think because we have tasted what Christ has done for us, we want to do the same. And I want you to come and have a glimpse of what it looks like to seek the interests of one another in this community. And perchance that you see that, maybe it will commend you to the credibility of the gospel. Now, in my previous life, when I was a teacher and I had to do evangelistic Bible study. I did it with one of my students and she came from an abusive background. One of the hardest things was that like, it, it's like trying, trying to get facts into her is so difficult, right? Trying to preach the gospel to her is so difficult. You know why? Because 
her father who abused her just gives her a sense that all authority is wicked and manipulative. So what I did to what I did for her, I was like, hey, why don't why don't we stop this like evangelistic Bible study? Right? Why don't you come to my church, come to my fellowship? This is my previous church. Why don't you come and just watch how brothers and sisters love one another imperfectly? I always qualify that it's imperfect, and she did. And eventually, she became a Christian. So I asked her, hey, what changed? And she's like, because looking at a gospel community made the gospel believable. Well, friends, as I come to an end, um, I want to share about this book that I was reading. It's like, it's called Crossroads in the Second Century or something like that. And it was about how Christian faith actually spread like wildfire. Now listen to the way the church love others with a radical love, right? The early Christians took care of other believers who had economic burdens, which means to say that like, if someone needed a proper burial because they couldn't afford one, everybody would pull their resources together. Now, more than that, if they notice someone who is starving and without food, now listen to this, the believers in the community will even fast for two to three days so that there will be enough food for everybody. And listen to this, not only did they love their own, they also loved the Romans who hated them and persecuted them. Because during times of epidemic where everybody is fleeing to the countryside, it was always the Christians who remained behind to seek and to tend to those who are sick. Now, if I were to summarize second century Christianity, I could go something like that, right? The, the pagans or the Romans, they basically were very generous with their uh, beds, but very stingy with their tables, <laughs> um, i.e. they are very un- inhospitable, but they are very promiscuous. But the Christians, on the other hand, are very generous with their tables, but very stingy with their beds. <laughs> they shared everything with everyone, except their sexual partners. Now, friends, and that was how Christianity spread like wildfire. Because these people are all individually and corporately seeking the interests of not just their own, but those who hated them as well. And that's the reason why Christianity took off. And I want to encourage us, right, RAC, will we be known as a church to the outside world for seeking the interests of others? Is that something that you want people to characterize us for? May God help us. Let's pray. Father God, we confess how easy it is for us to curve inwards on ourselves in self-promotion and self-preservation. You know how we go through the week very often just licking our own wounds, barely thinking about the well-being of another person. You know how we go through the week very often building our towers of Babel and walls of Jericho and we give so little or scant regard to the building up of your people. Would you forgive us for our self-absorption? But more than that, would you show us in full clarity, on full view, how Christ did not preserve his own life so that he can promote Christ's likeness in us? Help us to become a people who seek the interests of others in this church, whether it's in our homes, whether it's in the church, whether it's in our CGs, whether it's in our workplaces. Help us to do it even as a church towards other churches. And we pray too that there are more men and women here who would make decisions that look so stupid to the world, look so inconvenient, looks like it's nothing but just losses and no apparent gain. I pray you give us these men and women and I pray that because of them, somehow we will also long to be like them, having the mind of Christ and always putting the interests of Christ and His people on top of everything else. 
We thank you and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.